Lisa Jackson is a women's healthcare provider in Georgia, and she's also part of our podcast family. And through our podcast Facebook page, we've had a variety of messenger conversations that are pretty patient deep and pretty complex. But some time ago, she mentioned to me a concern about fibroids in menopause. And her question was very straightforward. Hey, look, Dr. Chapa, we've got a patient with fibroids. Do we just forget them in menopause? I mean, menopause cures them, right? Uh, I mean, we just kind of let them go and never think about it again. And traditionally, the answer was, well, yeah, I mean, it's menopause, right? They're hormone dependent and responsive. So don't worry, menopause will take care of them. But there's new data from 2021 that shows they don't always go away and in some cases can actually have a steady rate of growth. So we're going to cover all this. What to do with fibroids and menopause, specifically about HRT? I mean, is HRT contraindicated and what kind of follow-up do we need to do here? It's a great question, Lisa. I'm sorry it took so long to get this out. I've got a variety of things on my plate, as you can guess. But it was so important. I had to get this done before the year closes out. So Lisa, here is your podcast regarding menopause, fibroids, their surveillance, and HRT. Here we go. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, podcast family, you got to stick to the end of this episode because we're going to go down some crazy trails here. And at the end, I'm going to give you the final synopsis, the final recs to what to do with this information. Fibroids are benign monoclonal smooth muscle tumors of the uterus, and they're the most common pelvic tumors in reproductive age women with an overall prevalence of about 35% based on clinical exam alone, 50% based on ultrasound, and half of those women don't even know that they have them and 80% on hysterectomy specimens. And now that's not just hist because of the fibroids. I'm talking about being found either as primary diagnosis or as an incidental find. So the prevalence goes up based on how you look for it. Of course, the salient feature of fibroids is that they're responsive to both estrogen and progesterone. Fibroids are not only influenced by estrogen from ovarian steroidogenesis, but also by estrogen produced in situ within the fibroid by conversion of androgen to estrogen by aromatase. Yep, these little fibroids are pretty efficient and they're productive because they take androstenedione and then convert it into an estrogen product even within its own stroma. Okay, so fibroids make their own estrogen, but they also have increased antennas to capture the estrogen. The expression of both estrogen and progesterone receptors has also been found to be increased or elevated within the fibroid itself compared to the surrounding endometrium, with progesterone receptors more concentrated in smaller fibroids than larger tumors. It's this kind of dependency on estrogen and progesterone from the fibroids that forms the whole basis of medical management of fibroids in the reproductive years. So remember that it's two-pronged. It's two different approaches. One is to saturate the receptors by giving them a high-dose continuous exposure of hormone to kind of wig them out. That's why you can do continuous birth control pills or continuous progestin therapy like with the Nexplanon or Mirena. Or the opposite approach, which is to starve them of estrogen and progesterone and make them in a pseudomenopausal state. So the two approaches are either pseudopregnancy with high constant level of hormones or pseudomenopause, which is a reduction of estrogen and progesterone. 
That's why things like mifepristone and ulipristol and the gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist and antagonist, that's why they do have a role here. Because like natural menopause, the ability to take away the fuel, the hormone fuel, can actually shrink them temporarily. And at the same time, keeping them in a high steroid-rich environment can actually kind of stun them, saturate the receptors. And the idea is that you kind of stun their growth that way. So there's no question that the more effective is to make them hormone poor in a pseudomenopause state. But of course, that comes with all the side effects of hot flashes, vaginal dryness, mood instability. So in the reproductive age patient, who has symptomatic fibroids. That's why we typically go with the pseudo-pregnancy state. All right, just a quick word on these medical options here in the reproductive age. These medications are only meant to be used temporarily as a bridge to surgery because once the medications are stopped, then there's a continued growth of these fibroid tissues once again. And speaking of surgical options, I'm glad that we've come a long way from just hysterectomy. I mean, that's all we had in the past, right? It was either vaginal or laparoscopic or laparoscopic-assisted. But the whole idea is we just chunked the whole uterus. And that's still appropriate in certain cases, especially when fertility is no longer necessary. But especially in those younger patients where fertility is a concern, I'm thankful that we've got more uterine-conserving options. I mean, thankfully, laparoscopically, we've got things like the Accessa procedure, which is a fantastic way to do radioablation of these fibroids, but yet preserve surrounding uterine tissue. And then hysteroscopically, of course, we've got the Sonata procedure. These are two great options in the appropriately selected patient. Ah, but those procedures are not the topic of focus for this episode. Remember, we're talking about fibroid and specifically what they do in menopause. But we got into this whole discussion talking about medications because for years, the standard has been medications to make the patient either in a pseudo-pregnancy state with constant high levels of hormones like continuous birth control or Nexplanon or high-dose progestin, and that works, or making them menopausal-like by taking away the hormones. And that's our transition into this topic. Because in menopause, there's a natural decrease in estrogen, right? That's obvious. So it would then follow that fibroids would then diminish or shrink in size. Now remember, as a first clinical pearl, no, menopause is not the cure for fibroids. Patients continue to have their fibroids. But because there is this reduction in size, assuming that we're not talking about hormone therapy yet, but there is this natural reduction in size, most women who have fibroids who enter menopause will be asymptomatic. Now that is assuming that we're talking about either mild or moderate sized fibroids. If these things are huge and up to the umbilicus, then those are more likely to cause issues, okay? So in general, fibroids that are definitely asymptomatic to begin with will continue to be asymptomatic in menopause. But in the majority of cases, mild to moderate fibroid burden will not be a burden. Most will not be an issue in the menopausal transition and beyond. So let's get back to this whole issue of fibroids do not go away in menopause because they don't. They may continue to be asymptomatic or those that were mildly symptomatic may turn asymptomatic in menopause, but they're still there. But because they do have this Lupron-like effect because of menopause, natural menopause or surgical induced, it doesn't matter as long as they're not on HRT, and we're going to discuss that in just a minute, um, then they do have this reduction in size. Now, of course, everyone gets concerned about fibroid growth in menopause and the chance that patient is actually having or, or harboring a hidden or a silent LMS, leiomyosarcoma. It's deadly. 
thankfully, Lyomyer sarcoma, which we're going to talk about in a minute, are extremely rare, okay? So the majority of the cases, fibroids continue to be fibroids, which are benign monoclonal tumors, not cancerous, okay? And we can get into the whole HRT effect in just a moment. But just to be clear, menopause is not a cure for fibroids. They continue. And even if you don't have HRT, fibroids can still feed themselves. Remember, they have aromatase. That's why we said that a little while ago. Because there is still androstenedione being circulated out in the body. And these fibroids, even in menopause, because they're good production centers, still have the ability to make their own estrogen products. So even if they're not on HRT, the patient is still having some fibroid fuel by the internal inherent ability of aromatase to take androstenedione, aromatize it into estrogen. That's why fibroids do not go away completely in menopause. Historically, remember, as we've already mentioned, in menopause, the thought was, oh, fibroids will take care of themselves. They shouldn't give you any problem at all. But an article from 2021 is causing us to reevaluate that dogma because that's not actually true. And we've really laid the groundwork for this. If they have their own ability to make their own fuel because they have internal aromatase, then they should have the ability to have some continued growth. Well, that's actually true. So I'm going to go over this new 2021 publication coming up right after this quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In November of 2021, Sen et al. published in the journal Menopause, which is the journal of the North American Menopause Society, an article titled Growth of Surgically Confirmed Lyomyomas in Postmenopausal Women, Analysis of the Influencing Factors, end quote. This was a retrospective study of postmenopausal women conducted in China. Now, the truth is, it was a total of only 102 postmenopausal women. That's 102. So it's a small n, okay? But still, it found something, it showed something that was pretty shocking because these were all postmenopausal women who ended up going to have surgery uh, for fibroid growth, all right? So these women, all postmenopausal, had at least two ultrasounds occurring uh, um, within a six-month interval in between or more, all right? So I had to have one ultrasound and then wait six months or more to have another one. And at some point, they had surgery because of fibroid growth. Well, what they found is, again, just a small N of 102, but fibroids actually either remained constant or... Or in some women that I'm going to discuss here in just a minute actually grew. Now, thankfully, all of the surgical specimens were benign. The pathology was just a fibroid, so no LMS. But remember, it was only an N of 102 patients, so that's not that shocking. But the idea here is that it changed the whole ship around because it took away that whole thought that fibroids don't grow in menopause because in some women, they can and they do. 
The authors found that in women who were overweight or obese had a greater rate of growth compared to women who were not overweight or obese. So a patient's BMI is directly related to their chance of having fibroid growth in menopause. Now, this has nothing to do with HRT, okay? We're just talking about natural menopause, and then these women were followed up by ultrasound, they had some fibroid growth, and they were taken uh, to surgery. Thankfully, they were all benign, and there was no difference in fibroid size between symptomatic or asymptomatic. So there's a couple of take-home messages here from this 2021 publication. One is that in overweight and obese women, fibroids do have a chance of growing and still being benign. Remember, LMS, leiomyosarcoma, super rare, thankfully. And most of those that do grow, they grew not exponentially, but they did have an increase in volume. And then when taking a surgery, they're benign. So the first take-home is, yes, they can grow in menopause outside of HRT influence. And the second big take-home is that Thankfully, they tended to be all benign. But remember, this is a small n, okay? The n is only 102. In the accompanying editorial in the same publication, Juana Hutchinson Colas has a great point put out in print. Quote, For clinicians, the growth of uterine fibroids after menopause has historically been one of concern since the expectation was that they regress during menopause. Those uterine fibroids that grew in a menopausal woman immediately sent a red flag to providers that they had to rule out a uterine myosarcoma. But this publication by Shen et al. in this issue of menopause adds to the literature that this is not always true. End quote. All right, podcast family, I hope that gives you a new light on what we're talking about here. So we need to stop telling patients that, oh, in menopause, your fibroids will be taken care of because especially if the patient is overweight or obese, those fibroids may have either a constant rate of growth or an accelerated rate of growth compared to someone who's not overweight or obese. And there's still a need, therefore, to potentially surveil these women. Now, to be very clear, ACOG and the Society of Reproductive Medicine, they don't actually have any guidelines for this. This is all level C expert opinion. But we're talking about natural non-HRT menopause, okay? But what happens when you add HRT on top of that? Well, we're going to discuss that as well coming up here in just a minute. Okay, so I'm kind of conflicted here on this whole issue of surveillance in the asymptomatic patient, okay? Now, obviously, if a patient is having bleeding and she's postmenopausal, whether or not she's on HRT, guys, you all know that needs evaluation, right? Obviously, that needs a pelvic ultrasound, endometrial biopsy, especially if the endometrial thickness is greater than four millimeters. I mean, we can't ignore that. The question becomes more difficult and more gray or blurry, I guess, when the patient is asymptomatic. Because the first question is, well, how often do you do do an ultrasound? And there's no direct answer for that. Most experts in the area of reproductive medicine and menopausal care say at least every six months for two years into the transition. And they're fine, then then you can let them go. Obviously, if they become symptomatic with pelvic pressure, uh, any kind of weird bowel or bladder symptoms, or of course, bleeding, then that's another issue. But for asymptomatic women with fibroids, the level C expert opinion is to consider ultrasound surveillance every six months for the first two years 
after menopause, all right? So menopause is 12 months of no periods and then two years after that. So I guess it's three years total or two years after the diagnosis of menopause has been made. Ah, but remember I said I'm conflicted. I'm going to tell you why because one of my mentors here, a big leader in the world of fibroid medicine, Dr. Linda Bradley at the Cleveland Clinic. By the way, I just love her. She's been so kind to me for over 10 years uh, when I was a young faculty, still trying to get things you know, moving and getting things published. Dr. Linda Bradley always looked out for me. So Dr. Bradley, little shout out to you. You're the bomb. You see, Dr. Bradley's stance is very clear. It's very simple and it's worked. And that's been the history of all medical treatment in menopause. And that's, hey, if you got fibroids and you're in menopause, if they're not bothering you, we don't bother them. Yes, that's a direct Linda Bradley quote. And I love it. I heard that years ago. She said that in, in a lot of medical commentaries and news articles that she's given out. And so that takes a more laissez-faire, the hands-off that, hey, even if they're growing, they're typically benign and we don't mess with them. As long as there's no other symptoms and there's no bleeding, you're fine. And that is 100% totally acceptable because here's the catch. Remember that 2021 article. Yes, they grew, but they were all benign. And so that's the big issue here. And there's no big difference between those who are symptomatic and and asymptomatic. So again, if we're just going to be removing them because they are growing, that's not the indication for surveillance. We're surveilling them to make sure that they're not just growing, but that they're growing normally. In other words, if there's any kind of strange appearance, if they become more um, indiscreet, if they have a necrotic core, if there's other markers suspicious for malignant change, then that's the value of surveillance. So we're surveilling not just to track their growth, which is totally fine, and we can expect some growth in volume, that's okay, but if they become symptomatic or on ultrasound imagery, if there's other evidence of malignant transformation, mainly necrotic center, uh, then that's something of a concern. Now, just to be clear, calcified fibroids are still benign. That's not considered a malignant change. So this is why I'm conflicted, because on one hand, there's the issue of a low-risk diagnostic procedure like an ultrasound with the potential high yield of finding malignant transformation if they look bad. And at the other end on Linda Bradley's camp is, hey, they don't bother you. We don't bother them. They have a little bit of growth. uh, And that's natural. That's to be expected because of aromatase. We just leave them alone unless they're symptomatic. Now, before we leave this issue of surveillance, remember, this has nothing to do with a patient who presents with new symptoms, new pelvic pressure, GI or bladder symptoms or abnormal bleeding. That's a whole other diagnostic evaluation. We're talking about surveillance, which by definition is looking after something without symptoms. So this has to do in the asymptomatic population. So I'm just going to leave that out to you, okay? So if you have a patient with known fibroids who enters menopause, there's two camps. Those who say it's reasonable to do surveillance with an ultrasound at the most frequent of every six months for two years. And then there's the other camp that says if they don't bother you, they don't bother us. And you know who's right? both of them. But again, there's one issue there is that in women who are overweight or obese, just be aware that it is acceptable to notice a little bit of volume growth in the fibroid. And unless there's other sonographic markers of malignant transformation, just leave them alone. Oh, wait, I got one more thing. So if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, if we're going to surveil it and we're going to find it growing, but we're not going to do anything, then why do we even look? 
Touche. <laughs> That's exactly Linda Bradley's point. Ooh, don't you love a good debate? I mean, this thing was talked about at, at AGL some years ago, and this is exactly how it went. It was a good point, and then counter-rebuttal. Good point, counter-rebuttal. And that's why there's no guidance on this, because the right thing to do, it is what's right with you and the patient. Yep, back to our favorite phrase, shared decision-making. All right, when we come back, let's now tackle the issue of HRT. We tackled fibroids, we covered menopause, and now let's cover HRT in the fibroid-bearing patient in menopause. The concern here with HRT and fibroids isn't just about their growth. It's about somehow stimulating these things to convert somehow into a malignant state like LMS, leiomyosarcoma. But that's actually not what the data shows at all. So that's a good thing. Uterine leiomyosarcoma or uterine LMS has the highest prevalence during pre- and perimenopause. It typically presents with abnormal uterine bleeding, but can also present with pelvic pain and or a uterine mass, although some patients only present with bowel or bladder symptoms due to the enlarging pelvic structure, and some patients remain asymptomatic. Okay, so that's a clinical pro right there. If your concern is that you're going to transform this benign mass into an LMS, don't let that be your contraindication to hormone replacement therapy. It's not valid. So to be very clear, having a patient with fibroids is not a contraindication to initiation of hormone replacement therapy. The North American Menopause Society, or NAMS, did their position statement in 2022 on hormone replacement therapy that updated the previous 2017 hormone replacement therapy position statement. And I find it interesting that NAMS doesn't touch on fibroids and HRT in this new position statement. Now, now, true, they're tackling a lot of big issues like HRT after breast cancer and HRT after endometrial or ovarian cancer, all pretty big, heavy topics. And there's great info in that, by the way. But they don't even touch on HRT and fibroids. Why? Because their safety is already proven. They're like, nah, it's not an issue. So fibroids, leiomyomas, didn't even make it into the NAMS 22 position statement. So that should tell you something there about its safety. Now, the next question, of course, is, well, what type of estrogen and progestin therapy seems to be best? Which one is going to cause the least kind of fibroid issue? Well, we just don't know. There is some data, although it's not perfect, that higher dose progestin therapy, traditionally more than 5 milligrams of medroxyprogesterone acetate, and again, that's a very high dose of Provera. I'm not sure why somebody would use that anyway, but a higher dose of progestin may kind of piss off, may make the fibroid angry and cause it to grow. But otherwise, the ideal amount or the ideal route of administration of estrogen and progestin is just not known. It's also not known of the new selective estrogen receptor modulators are any safer for fibroid growth. And of course, it goes back to that old rule of medicine that the lowest dose and the shortest duration of hormone exposure seems to be best, and that's just an overall recommendation to stick by. Now that we're at the end, here's my quick summary point as to where we're at at the end of 2022 in terms of fibroid status and menopause. First, we have to stop telling patients that menopause will fix their fibroids. It won't, and if they're overweight or obese, their fibroids may have a slightly upward trend of growth, although thankfully they continue to be benign and asymptomatic. 
So that's the first thing. Fibroids don't always stop growing in menopause. We need more data for that since that study publication from 2021 was only an N of less than 110 patients, but it did show that growth of fibroids is possible and they still remain benign. Second is the issue of fibroids and HRT. Fibroids are not a contraindication to hormone therapy. And while these fibroids can exhibit some growth, they tend to remain asymptomatic. And again, there's no data that shows that they have a higher propensity towards malignant transformation. And number three, the most controversial issue has to do with surveillance. There is no formal societal guidance, either from ACOG or ASRM, regarding the use of ultrasound or any other type of surveillance in patients that have fibroids that are asymptomatic and are in menopause. For some patients who have fibroids and menopause who are overweight or obese, then you can consider doing surveillance at six months intervals for two years. Although that is not a formal recommendation, that is level C expert opinion. And remember, you're not looking for fibroid growth just to do a hysterectomy, but if you have fibroid growth with other sonographic markers of potential malignancy, then that brings up that discussion with the patient. The other hand, the other rule of thought is that if they don't bother you, then they don't bother us and we don't mess with them. So remember that there's no one answer for surveillance. It comes down to shared decision making. But if you're going to do surveillance, don't get all wiggy if you notice that they have a little fibroid growth. It's totally acceptable and it's okay as long as there's no other ultrasound markers of malignant transformation and the patient remains asymptomatic. All right, Lisa, I told you I was going to get this podcast out, and I did. It took me a while, but I'm a man of my word. I got it out there for you. So fibroids and menopause, can they use HRT? For sure. Which type of HRT is best? Don't know. And should you surveil them? Well, it depends on who you ask. So I hope you got some benefit of this episode. Thanks for your message. Stay in touch. And for the rest of the podcast family, wish you a best of the holiday season as we wrap up 2022 and come up close to New Year's. I'm going to think, I think we're going to get one podcast episode up and out before that. But if I don't, Happy New Year to everyone. And here's to looking forward to 2023.